0: It's the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, May 27, 2020. On this date in history, in 1930 the Chrysler Building opened in New York. It was at the time the tallest man-made structure. Ten years later, in 1940, British and Allied forces began the evacuation of Dunkirk during the Second World War. There was a 2017 movie by Christopher Nolan that chronicled this evacuation. And on May 27, 1999, Canadian astronaut Judy Payette took off aboard the space shuttle Discovery for the International Space Station. She was the second Canadian woman to fly in orbit. The first was Roberta Bondar. Payette was the first Canadian to board the International Space Station. Uh, in fact she helped in its construction. And of course you may remember that in 2017, she became the Governor General of Canada, the 29th Governor General. On today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service, we have author Joel Yanofsky, who's going to be speaking about his book, Mordecai and Me. We also have chapters 7 and 8 from Right Ho Jeeves, that's the P.G. Woodhouse book that we played uh, this week and last week. And finally, we have Marie-Anique Belliveau, who will be singing *Imo Printemps. Felix
1: Hello, my name is Joel Yanofsky and I'm a writer here in Montreal. And I've been kindly asked by uh, the Cote Saint-Luc Libra- Library and Janine West uh, to read you some stuff from a book I wrote uh, quite a few years ago. Now it was actually it came out in 2003. That was a couple of years after the death of Mordecai Richler, which is a pertinent fact since the book is about Richler. Uh, I started out wanting to write a biography, I think, after he died. And what ended up instead was uh, some kind of obsession. That's the problem with books and writers. They don't always know what they're doing. And sometimes sometimes something good comes out of it. And I hope that that was the case in this The book is called Mordecai and Me, An Appreciation of a Kind. And it is a reflection in large part of the mixed feelings I had about Richler. I knew him a little bit, our paths crossed, but we were never friendly. And every time I interviewed him, which was several times, uh, I was happy to get out of there, you know, in 45 minutes with my dignity intact. I think he was happy to end the interview too. Uh, I don't know what it was. I think he probably suspected I wanted more from him than he was prepared to give being a Montreal writer and a Jewish writer. Uh, so our relationship was, like I said, uh, uh, not that friendly. Uh, but once I started writing about him, I discovered that it was more complicated than even I knew it was. So I'll read you a little bit from the beginning that sort of explains what I'm doing, and then I'll read a little bit more uh, later on. It's just a couple of two or three passages. <clears throat> so here we go. More than a year ago, when the idea for this book was no more than a three-page proposal and an alliterative title, I spoke to one publisher who expressed some interest in a Richler book, but who also worried about the timing of such a project. Was it too soon after his death, just a few months then, to be writing about him? Was it in bad taste? Absolutely, I said, with inappropriate enthusiasm. Caught off guard by the question, I forgot for a second that I was making a pitch, the tact, not candor, was required. Still, I had given this question some thought. No doubt about it. I went on. There went on. There is a vulturous quality to this proposal. How could there not be? What is literature anyway, but picking at the bones of the dead? This turned out to be a rhetorical question. Instead of re- <coughs> <coughs> instead of reply, I heard a slight but audible gasp at the other end of the line. Publishers, I had always assumed, were made of sterner stuff. Apparently, not. I had shocked this one, so for the sake of my pitch, I backtracked or attempted to. I talked about the importance of reassessing, reassessing Richler's place, preeminent, I assisted, in Canadian literature. But it was too late to be convincing, perhaps because I'd said what I meant the first time. Vulture was not the, the just, the right creature, too. There was no way around it. What I intended to do was exploit Mordecai Richler's life, or more to the point, his death for my own purposes. Literary purpose is true, but so what? In a sense of the ridiculous, Richler's essay about his early days in Paris, he recalls with a sense of shame the moment he considered himself a writer. It was the moment he became cunning, somebody with a use for everything, even intimacies. And here I was with a use for a dead man. Richler was barely cold, the tributes were still pouring in, with other more elaborate ones still being planned. And here I was with my worried over proposal letter, my jaunty title, Mordecai and me, ampersand and all, trying to rush to the head of the line that would no doubt be forming around Richler and his reputation. What kind of person does that? What kind of person stalks the dead for the sake of a publisher's go ahead, for a project, for a piddling advance? Frankly, I didn't know. I also didn't know where I got the chutzpah. Insofar as I have qualifications to write about Mordecai Richler, here they are. I was born on the same streets he wrote about, and though I didn't grow up there, my parents and grandparents did. Like Richler, I'm a Montrealer, which I'm more, than, I'm more that than Canadian. I'm also Jewish, not, though not at all observant. I freelance, write novels when I can find the time and courage to work on one, and as a literary journalist and reviewer, I have followed Richler's career and written about his work for more than two decades. These are qualifications, I suppose, but for what? An infatuation? An obsession? Mordecai and Me is the story of that obsession and how it has taken over my life, keeping me up nights, making me doubt myself and what I've gotten myself into. Still, there's no, doubt, doubt, there's no doubting this. Mordecai Richler was the most infuriating, the most engaging and complicated character that Mordecai Richler never wrote about. This book will prove Richler wrong on that important point. Writers' lives are not boring. But then he knew that, the endearing SOB. He was keeping the aim material for himself. In his novel, St. Urban's Horseman, the beleaguered hero, Jake Hirsch, pines for the company of an admired writer. You know what's important to me? Really, really important, Hirsch says, Dr. Samuel Johnson. I keep wondering, if I lived in, the, in his time, would he have liked me? Would Dr. Johnson have invited me to sit at his table? I'm lucky, I guess. I know the answer to whether Mordecai Richler would have asked me to sit at his table. I know, because he never did. So that's how it starts. The book itself is not just about Richler, it's about other writers. And during the course of writing it, uh, something happened that surprised me, and that found its way into the book, found its way into my dreams, too. I began dreaming about a writer named Jan Martel who I also knew a little bit. we sort of hung out a bit at various times. Uh, And his career was taking off. He was quite a bit younger than me, and uh, he'd written the book The Life of Pi, of course. And uh, I'd been asked to interview him at a a Blue Metropolis panel discussion. And the fact is, I hadn't finished the book when I interviewed him. Uh, I hid that fact, and I also hid the fact that I didn't really care for the book very much. Uh, maybe because I didn't finish it. But in any case, Martel's rise in his career sort of paralleled my struggle with this particular book. <clears throat> and it all sort of culminated in this moment that I'm going to read you, uh, in this scene that I'm going to read you. So here it go. Here we go with that. Writers seldom wish each other well, Saul Bellow said, which is fair enough, but then what? What happens when not wishing other writers well isn't enough, when it backfires as it tends to? Well, for starters, you should probably shut up about it. Envy is the central fact of a writing life, Gore Vidal said, and the fact least talked about. There was more about Mordecai Richler and Jan Mattel I was keeping from Dr. Krauss. Dr. Krauss, I should say, is a psychiatrist, a psychologist or psychiatrist I'd sort of employed, sort of, to analyze my obsession with Richler. And while I knew this would jeopardize our little experiment, I didn't care. I figured I'd always embarrass my, already embarrass myself enough in front of a former student. A few days after the Booker Prize nominees were announced, a list that included two other Canadians, Carol Shields and Rohinton Mistry, along with Martel, I received a call from an arts reporter for a local CBC television program. She was preparing a profile of Martel as a run-up to the prize ceremony, and she wanted someone to talk about the life of Pi, explain its success. Would I do that? I was tempted. I don't have rules I live by, but if I did, one would be to never say no to being on TV. Being on TV is like being alive, only more so, John Updike said, about his experience with the medium. That has been my experience as well. Still, in this case, I reluctantly declined. I confessed that while I had read most of Life of Pi, I couldn't bring myself to finish it. I found all that description of life on the lifeboat and the hero's survival strategies interminable. Asked once how much research he did for fact-based novels like Ragtime and Billy Bathgate, the novelist E.L. Doctor replied, "'Just enough.' The opposite seemed true in Life of Pi. Martel had done his homework and then some. He learned everything there was to know about being shipwrecked with a Bengal tiger insofar as that was possible. As for me, I just didn't care. How often was something like that going to come up? As for the tiger, well, I said, don't get me started.' A few weeks later, on the day the Booker Prize was, Prize was handed out, TV came calling again. This time, a tr- producer for the local CBC Supper Hour news show asked if I could come in and talk to the anchor, Dennis Trudeau, about the Booker Prize ceremony. The show was going to be covering the Canadian, Canadian angle, in particular the local angle. After all, Martel was a Montrealer, one of ours... The plan was this, bring in Martel's parents, some relatives and family friends, and tape them as they watched the live BBC feed announcing the winner, which was scheduled for 5.30 local time, an hour before the CBC coverage began. If Jan Martel won, the local station would have an exclusive. Family stunned, tearful, celebrating, jumping up and down like game show contestants. Real reality TV. Meanwhile, Dennis Trudeau would immediately interview Martel's father and ask him how he felt. That sort of thing, the sort of thing television, was invented for. But what if he doesn't win? I was told that would still make good television, though maybe not quite as good. Disappointment and failure play better in literature than on TV. So what about me? What do you need me for, I asked. Context, the producer said. The plan was for me to go on the air live with Dennis Trudeau after the winner was announced and the family interviewed and talk about the significance of literary prizes this prize in particular, and if a Canadian did win, what significance it would have for Canadian literature. Once again, I knew I should say no, but this time I didn't. The producer told me to be at the studio for five. They wanted me to come in early and watch the BBC televised ceremony with Martel's family. So that's what I did. In fact, I arrived at the CBC at the same time as the Martel family. Jan's father, Emil Emil Martel, a diplomat and a respected poet, couldn't hide his excitement. His cell phone rang while we were talking. It was his son calling from London, he told me. Jan was staying calm, his father said. His father, on the other hand, wasn't. And why would he be calm? He had every reason to be proud, to be overwhelmed by this extraordinary event. I couldn't help imagining my parents in a similar situation, how they would feel, how they would be endearingly insufferable, overdosing on nachos. Then I dismissed the thought. There was already enough to be jealous about without me thinking about his parents, how his parents were alive, and mine weren't. As Martel's family and I were led to the studio, the only thing I could think of was that he wasn't going to win. I would have put money on it, given odds. I was convinced and felt like, like garbage for being so pleased with my prediction. I trailed after the Martel family into the studio. They were being seated for their on-camera segment when a stagehand saw me and called for another chair. Oh, no, not for me. I'm just observing, I said. I'm not part of the family. But part of the family of literature, Emil, Emil Martel jumped in, which only made me feel worse. Then the producer whispered in my ear, so the Martels wouldn't hear, that they had received a tip from the BBC earlier in the afternoon. They had been assured that a Canadian would win. Martel's odds were suddenly twice as good, decreasing from six to one to three to one. The odds on my own predicament, on the other hand, were suddenly half as good, What if Jan Martel did win? Well, for starters, I would be asked what I thought of the book. If I expressed my honest and admittedly snippy opinion, it would sound like sour grapes, like a monumental case of sour grapes, which was, to be honest, more or less what it was. Then Then again, if I went on the air and said the book deserved to win, what kind of wimp would I be? What kind of bandwagon jumper? I could either be embittered and envious or suck up. Those were my choices. A writer's life encapsulated. I could also keep on rooting for my own petty personal reasons for Carol Shields. Of course, Martel won. Of course, his parents were thrilled. They even jumped up and down. They were jubilant and moved, and Emil Martel spoke eloquently about what the victory meant to his son and to him. It was great television. Even I could see that. Suddenly I wished I had a copy of Life of Pi with me so I could finish on the spot, in the hour or so I had until I went on the air, and proclaim my change of heart. In any case, I had decided what I was going to do. I was going to shut up. Discretion was a better part of valor and of simple, ordinary decency. Who was I to drizzle on this parade? That was my plan anyway, and I remained my plan until an hour later when another producer fetched me from the green room and told me as I went up to the studio for my live interview that they were were really glad to have me on, that I would give some balance to the Martell segment. Balance? What did she mean by balance? Well, she said, everyone's celebrating and everything, and then we have you, and you didn't even like the book. How do you know that, I asked. But I knew. I remembered my conversation the CBC arts reporter a few weeks earlier. So then, live on the air, immediately after the audience at home had watched the Martell family celebrate their son's triumph, after what was arguably the biggest splash made by a writer in Canadian literary history, Dennis Trudeau turned to me and with a news anchor's talent for insinuation said, This wasn't your choice, was it? You didn't even like this book. It was a leading question, but no more than I deserved. I talked about the tiger and tried to make sense, but all I could think of was the Martell family, and how after they returned home from a celebratory dinner, they were probably going to sit down to watch a tape of the program, and how even if I got really lucky and they'd programmed their VCR incorrectly, or being cultured people had no VCR, there would be a whole slew of messages on their answering machine. What were the chances they didn't have an answering machine? Congratulating them and then adding an, oh, by the way, who is that little prick badmouthing Yan? What's his problem? So much for the family of literature. So, yeah, uh, like I said, this is a book that embarrasses me as much as anybody else. So uh, I'll just read one last part. And it's, uh, it's, about, it's a more general piece about Montreal community's relationship with Mordecai Richler and an experience I had with uh, that community. Late in the summer of 1994, I was asked to speak at a suburban synagogue by the woman in charge of the book review series. I'd done this kind of public speaking gig before, and I knew that while I was permitted to choose any book I wanted, there would be constraints. It was incumbent upon me to pick something appropriate, in other words. In other words, something Jewish. The more Jewish, the better. This wasn't going to be a problem, I could have hardly come up with a more appropriate book than Mordecai Richler's This Year in Jer- This Year in Jerusalem account of two visits he made to Israel one in 1962 the other 30 years later. I was going to be reviewing the book for the Gazette in the fall and I just received my copy of the as yet unpublished manuscript. So on top of everything else this would be a scoop. This Year in Jer- Jerusalem wasn't just a brand new book by Richler it was a book about Richler in the Holy Land. It was, ipso facto, as Jewish as a mutzabal. ball. I told the woman on the other end of the line all this and awaited her enthusiastic reply. None was forthcoming. There was no reply at all for a while. Then she finally asked, have you read it yet? I told her I hadn't, that no one had, that it wasn't out yet. All right, she said with a sigh. Read it and let me know how bad it is. It took me a moment to realize that what she meant by how bad was how offensive. So Richler's in Jerusalem, so big deal, she was thinking. That'll make him stop with the vulgar remarks, maybe? All of a sudden you think butter melts in this guy's mouth? Not this piece of work. I asked the woman if she'd read much of Richler's not work. Enough, she said, by which she probably meant hardly any. But she likely assumed that you don't have to be a chicken to recognize a rotten egg. In the name of literature, I suppose I should have challenged her preconceived notions and the ease with which they arrived at them. she arrived at them, but instead I said, I'll let you know how bad it is, I mean. I didn't speak to her again until I showed up at her synagogue a couple of months later. I reassured her that the book was fine, and vetted by me it was. For my audience of mostly elderly men and women, I left out some of the more colorful things Richler had to say about the Holy Land like the remark he makes to a particularly zealous cabbie who tries to lecture Richler on Inge- Israeli ingenuity. Have you, ever, have you guys ever thought of bottling Israeli piss and marketing abroad as perfume? Or Richler's comment about how Jerusalem, with its honorary plaques from rich North American Jews everywhere, is a brilliantly organized panhandler's heaven, the ultimate Schnorrville. Instead, I took the high and the safe road. I gave them a Richler to be proud of. At least I tried. There was, for example, the eager young man who had joined Habanim, a Zionist youth organization, in the 1940s. The young man who had even considered dropping out of high school to fight in Israel's war of independence. There was Richler, the defender of the faith, boasting like a school kid about Israeli accomplishments, about blooming deserts, and Menachem Begin, our Jimmy Cagney. But the audience was restless. It turns out they wanted the bad stuff. They had comfort, and if I wasn't going to provide it, they would. After my lecture, the question-and-answer period consisted mainly of second-hand gossips, gossip about friends who knew friends, who knew Richler, and who knew, knew what a no-goodnik was, he was, or a lush, or an anti-Semite. He doesn't talk to his mother, you know, one woman said, or his brother, someone else added. He's a dentist. He lives in New Brunswick, the brother. And he's changed his name. Newfoundland, someone corrected. The brother lives in Newfoundland. Meanwhile, I stood behind my lectern, trying to act literary and above it all. I also tried to interject a remark here and there about the art of writing, about Richler's career, but I was all but superfluous. I was also getting annoyed. How beside the point all this nattering was, all this gossip, how inappropriate and unbefitting a man of literature, by which I meant not just Mordecai Richler, but me. Now I wonder if I was wrong about how much this audience misunderstood Richler. Here was a room full of people, most of whom couldn't care less about the nuances of literary life, most of whom hadn't read or anyway, couldn't remember a word from Dodi Kravitz or St. Urban's Horseman or Solomon Gursky was here. And even so they recognized something about Richler that was unmistakably true. He didn't just make trouble, he liked making trouble. He enjoyed pissing people off and here they were the proof pissed off people. Everyone was getting what they expected. Everyone was happy. And that's my little excerpt from uh, Mordecai and Me, uh, an appreciation of a kind. I hope you get to read it sometime. I hope everybody stays safe and well. And thanks again for uh, inviting me into your ears, I guess. Uh, All the best.
2: Hi, this is Wacoon Chan, editor of La Shenna Musicale magazine and co-founder of the Corona Serenades. The coronavirus has forced us all into social isolation. La Shenna Musicale is mobilizing an international movement to deliver the joy of music with Corona Serenades. These personalized virtual serenades are now free for seniors 70 plus. We would like to thank the Cote Saint Luke Public Library for supporting this initiative. And to all in Cote Saint Luke, be well and stay safe. You can find out more by visiting coronaserenades.com. Les <laughs> blessons mûres et la terre est mouillée. Les grands labous dorment sous la gelée. L'oiseau si beau. La porte est close sur le jardin fané Au mois de mai, après le du je sortirai, bras nus dans la lumière, et lui dirai le salut de la
3: Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 7. I meditated pretty freely as I drove to Brinkley in the old two-seater that afternoon. The news of this rift or rupture of Angela's and Tuppy's had disturbed me greatly. The projected match, you see, was one on which I had always looked with kindly approval. Too often, when a chap of your acquaintance is planning to marry a girl you know, you find yourself knitting the brow a bit, and chewing the lower lip dubiously, feeling that he, or she, or both, should be warned while there is yet time. But I have never felt anything of this nature about Tuppy and Angela. Tuppy, when not making an ass of himself, is a soundish sort of egg. So is Angela a soundish sort of egg. And, as far as being in love was concerned, it had always seemed to me that you wouldn't have been far out in describing them as two hearts that beat as one. True, they had their little tiffs, notably on the occasion when Tuppy, with what he said was fearless honesty and I considered thorough goofiness, had told Angela that her new hat made her look like a Pekingese. But in every romance, you have to budget for the occasional dust up, and after that incident, I had supposed that he had learned his lesson, and that from now on life would be one grand sweet song. And now this wholly unforeseen severing of diplomatic relations had popped up through a trap. I gave the thing the cream of the Wooster brain all the way down, but it continued to beat me what could have caused the outbreak of hostilities and I bunged my foot sedulously on the accelerator, in order to get to Aunt Dahlia with the greatest possible speed, and learn the inside history straight from the horse's mouth. And what with all six cylinders hitting nicely, I made good time, and found myself closeted with the relative shortly before the hour of the evening cocktail. She seemed glad to see me. In fact, she actually said she was glad to see me. A statement no other aunt on the list would have committed herself to— the customary reaction of these near and dear ones to the spectacle of Bertram arriving for a visit being a sort of sick horror. Decent of you to rally round, Bertie, she said. My place was by your side, Aunt Dahlia, I responded. I could see at a G that the unfortunate affair had got in amongst her in no uncertain manner. Her usual cheerful map was clouded, and the genial mile conspic by its A. I pressed her hand sympathetically, to indicate that my heart bled for her. "'Bad show, this, my dear old flesh-and-blood,' I said. "'I'm afraid you've been having a sticky time. You must be worried.' She snorted emotionally. She looked like an aunt who had just bitten into a bad oyster. "'Worried is right. I haven't had a peaceful moment since I got back from Khan. Ever since I put my foot across this blasted threshold—' said Aunt Dahlia, returning to the nonce to the hearty argot of the hunting-field. Everything's been at sixes and sevens. First there was that mix-up about the prize-giving. She paused at this point and gave me a look. "'I have been meaning to speak freely to you about your behavior in that matter, Bertie,' she said. I had some good things all stored up. But as you've rallied round like this, I suppose I shall have to let you off.' And, anyway, it is probably all for the best that you evaded your obligations in that sickeningly craven way. I have an idea that this spink-bottle of yours is going to be good. If only he can keep off the newts. Has he been talking about newts? He has, fixing me with a glittering eye, like the ancient mariner. But if that was the worst I had to bear, I wouldn't mind. What I'm worrying about is what Tom says when he starts talking. Uncle Tom? I wish there was something else you could call him except Uncle Tom, said Aunt Dahlia a little testily. Every time you do it, I expect to see him turn black and start playing the banjo. Yes, Uncle Tom, if you must have it. I shall have to tell him soon about losing all that money at Baccarat, and when I do, he will go up like a rocket. Still, no doubt, time the great heather—time the great heather be blowed— I've got to get a cheque for five hundred pounds out of him for milady's boudoir by August the third at the latest. I was concerned. Apart from a nephew's natural interest in an aunt's refined weekly paper, I had always had a soft spot in my heart for milady's boudoir, ever since I contributed that article to it on what the well-dressed man is wearing. Sentimental, possibly, but we old journalists do have these feelings. "'Is the boudoir on the rocks?' It will be if Tom doesn't cough up. It needs help till it has turned the corner. But wasn't it turning the corner two years ago? It was. And it's still at it. Till you've run a weekly paper for women, you don't know what corners are. And do you think the chances of getting into uncle—into uncle by marriage's ribs are slight? I'll tell you, Bertie. Up till now, when these subsidies were required— I have always been able to come to Tom in the gay, confident spirit of an only child touching an indulgent father for chocolate cream. But he's just had a demand from the income-tax people for an additional fifty-eight pounds, one and threepence, and all he's been talking about since I got back has been ruin and the sinister trend of socialist legislation and what will become of us all. I could readily believe it. This Tom has a peculiarity I've noticed in other very oofy men— Nick him for the paltryest sum, and he lets out a squawk you can hear at Land's End. He has the stuff in gobs, but he hates giving it up. If it wasn't for Anatole's cooking, I doubt if he would bother to carry on. Thank God for Anatole, I say. I bowed my head reverently. Good old Anatole, I said. Amen, said Aunt Dahlia. Then, the look of holy ecstasy— which is always the result of letting the mind dwell however briefly on Anatole's cooking, died out of her face. "'But don't let me wander from the subject,' she resumed. "'I was telling you of the way Hell's Foundations have been quivering since I got home. First the prize-giving, then Tom, and now, on top of everything else, this infernal quarrel between Angela and young Glossop.' I nodded gravely. I was frightfully sorry to hear of that. Terrible shock.' What was the row about? Sharks. Eh? Sharks. Or, rather, one individual shark. The brute that went for the poor child when she was aquaplaning at Cannes. You remember Angela's Shark? Certainly I remembered Angela's Shark. A man of sensibility does not forget about a cousin nearly being chewed by monsters of the deep. The episode was still green in my memory. In a nutshell, what had occurred was this. You know how you aquaplane a motorboat nips on ahead, trailing a rope. You stand on a board, holding the rope, and the boat tows you along, and every now and then you lose your grip on the rope and plunge into the sea and have to swim to your board again. A silly process, it has always seemed to me, though many find it diverting. Well, on the occasion referred to, Angela had just regained her board after taking a toss when a great beastly shark came along and cannoned into it, flinging her into the salty once more. It took her quite a bit of time to get on again and make the motorboat chap realize what was up and haul her to safety, and during that interval you can readily picture her embarrassment. According to Angela, the finny denizen kept snapping at her ankles virtually without cessation, so that by the time help arrived she was feeling more like a salted almond at a public dinner than anything human. Very shaken the poor child had been, I recall, and had talked of nothing else for weeks. I remember the whole incident vividly, I said. But how did that start the trouble? She was telling him the story last night. Well, her eyes shining and her little hands clasped in girlish excitement. No doubt. And instead of giving her the understanding and sympathy to which she was entitled, what do you think this blasted glossop did?' He sat listening like a lump of dough, as if she had been talking about the weather, and when she had finished, he took his cigarette holder out of his mouth and said, I expect it was only a floating log. He didn't. He did. And when Angela described how the thing had jumped and snapped at her, he took his cigarette holder out of his mouth again and said, Ah, probably a flatfish. Quite harmless. No doubt it was just trying to play. Well, I mean— What would you have done if you'd been Angela? She has pride, sensibility, all the natural feelings of a good woman. She told him he was an ass and a fool and an idiot, and didn't know what he was talking about. I must say, I saw the girl's viewpoint. It's only about once in a lifetime that anything sensational ever happens to one, and when it does, you don't want people taking all the color out of it. I remember at school having to read that stuff where that chap Othello tells the girl what a hell of a time he's been having among the cannibals and what not. Well, imagine his feelings, if, after he had described some particularly sticky passage with a cannibal chief and was waiting for the awestruck, oh, not really, she had said that the whole thing had no doubt been greatly exaggerated and that the man had probably really been a prominent local vegetarian. Yes, I saw Angela's point of view.' but don't tell me that when he saw how shirty she was about it, the chump didn't back down. He didn't. He argued. And one thing led to another, until by easy stages, they had arrived at the point where she was saying that she didn't know if he was aware of it, but if he didn't knock off starchy foods and do exercises every morning, he would be getting as fat as a pig, and he was talking about this modern habit of girls putting make on their faces, of which he had always disapproved. This continued for a while, and then there was a loud pop, and the air was full of mangled fragments of their engagement. I'm distracted about it. Thank goodness you've come, Bertie. Nothing could have kept me away, I replied, touched. I felt you needed me. Yes. Quite. Or rather, she said, not you, of course, but Jeeves. The minute all this happened, I thought of him. The situation obviously cries out for Jeeves— if ever in the whole history of human affairs there was a moment when that lofty brain was required about the home, this is it. I think, if I had been standing up, I would have staggered. In fact, I'm pretty sure I would. But it isn't so dash it easy to stagger when you're sitting in an armchair. Only my face, therefore, showed how deeply I'd been stung by these words. Until she spoke them, I had been all sweetness and light— the sympathetic nephew prepared to strain every nerve to do his bit. I now froze, and the face became hard and set. "'Jeeves!' I said, between clenched teeth. "'Umba said Aunt Dahlia. I saw that she had got the wrong angle. I was not sneezing. I was saying, "'Jeeves!' "'And well you may. What a man! I'm going to put the whole thing up to him. There's nobody like Jeeves.' My frigidity became more marked. I venture to take issue with you, Aunt Dahlia. You take what? Issue. You do, do you? I emphatically do. Jeeves is hopeless. What? Quite hopeless. He has lost his grip completely. Only a couple of days ago, I was compelled to take him off a case because his handling of it was so footling. And, anyway, I resent this assumption, if assumption is the word I want, that Jeeves is the only fellow with brain. I object to the way everybody puts things up to him without consulting me and letting me have a stab at them first. She seemed about to speak, but I checked her with a gesture. It is true that in the past I have sometimes seen fit to seek Jeeves's advice. It is possible that in the future I may seek it again, but I claim the right to have a pop at these problems as they arise, in person, without having everybody behave as if Jeeves was the only onion in the hash." I sometimes feel that Jeeves, though admittedly not unsuccessful in the past, has been lucky rather than gifted. Have you and Jeeves had a row? Nothing of the kind. You seem to have it in for him. Not at all. And yet I must admit there was a modicum of truth in what she said. I had been feeling pretty austere about the man all day, and I'll tell you why. You remember that he caught the 1245 train with the luggage— while I remained on in order to keep a luncheon engagement. Well, just before I started out to the tryst, I was pottering about the flat, and suddenly, I don't know what put this suspicion into my head, possibly the fellow's manner had been furtive, something seemed to whisper to me to go and have a look in the wardrobe. And it was as I had expected. There was the mess-jacket, still on its hanger. The hound hadn't packed it. Well, as anybody at the drones will tell you, Bertram Wooster is a pretty hard chap to out-general. I shoved the thing in a brown paper parcel and put it in the back of the car, and it was on a chair in the hall now. But that didn't alter the fact that Jeeves had attempted to do the dirty on me, and I suppose a certain what-you-call-it had crept into my manner during the above remarks. "'There has been no breach,' I said. You might describe it as a passing coolness, but no more. We did not happen to see eye to eye with regard to my white mess-jacket with the brass buttons, and I was compelled to assert my personality. But, well, it doesn't matter, anyway. The thing that matters is that you are talking piffle, you poor fish. Jeeves lost his grip. Absurd. Why, I saw him for a moment when he arrived, and his eyes were absolutely glittering with intelligence. I said to myself, Trust Jeeves, and I intend to." You would be far better advised to let me see what I can accomplish, Aunt Dahlia. For heaven's sake, don't you start butting in. You'll only make matters worse. On the contrary, it may interest you to know that while driving here I concentrated deeply on this trouble of Angela's and was successful in formulating a plan, based on the psychology of the individual, which I am proposing to put into effect at an early moment. Oh, my God! My knowledge of human nature tells me it will work." Bertie, said Aunt Dahlia, and her manner struck me as febrile, lay off, lay off, for pity's sake, lay off. I know these plans of yours. I suppose you want to shove Angela into the lake and push young Glossop in to save her life or something like that. Nothing of the kind. It's the sort of thing you would do. My scheme is far more subtle. Let me outline it for you. No, thanks. I say to myself, but not to me do listen for a second i won't right ho then i am dumb and have been from a child i perceived that little good could result from continuing the discussion i waved a hand and shrugged a shoulder very well aunt dahlia i said with dignity if you don't want to be in on the ground floor that is your affair but you are missing an intellectual treat and anyway no matter how much you may behave like the deaf adder of scripture which, as you are doubtless aware, the more one piped, the less it danced, or words to that effect, I shall carry on as planned. I am extremely fond of Angela, and I shall spare no effort to bring the sunshine back into her heart. Bertie, you abysmal chump, I appeal to you once more. Will you please lay off? You will only make things ten times as bad as they already are. I remember reading in one of those historical novels once about a chap— a bucky would have been, no doubt, or a macaroni or some such bird as that, who, when people said the wrong thing, merely laughed down from lazy eyelids and flicked a speck of dust from the irreproachable meshlin lace at his wrists. This was practically what I did now. At least I straightened my tie and smiled one of those inscrutable smiles of mine. I then withdrew and went out for a saunter in the garden. And the first chap I ran into was young Tuppy. His brow was furrowed and he was moodily bunging stones at a flower-pot. I think I have told you before about young Tuppy Glossop. He was the fellow, if you remember, who, callously ignoring the fact that we had been friends since boyhood, bedded me one night at the drones so that I could swing myself across the swimming-bath by the rings, a childish feat for one of my lissomeness, and then, having seen me well on the way, looped back the last ring." thus rendering it necessary for me to drop into the deep end in formal evening costume. To say that I had not resented this foul deed, which seemed to me deserving of the title of the crime of the century, would be paltering with the truth. I had resented it profoundly, chafing not a little at the time, and continuing to chafe for some weeks. But you know how it is with these things. The wound heals, the agony abates. I am not saying, mind you, that had the opportunity presented itself of dropping a wet sponge on Tuppy from some high spot, or of putting an eel in his bed, or finding some other form of self-expression of a like nature, I would have not embraced it eagerly, but that let me out. I mean to say, grievously injured though I had been, it gave me no pleasure to feel that the fellow's ballied life was being ruined by the loss of a girl, whom, despite all that had passed, I was convinced he still loved like the Dickens. On the contrary, I was heart and soul in favor of healing the breach and rendering everything hotsy-totsy once more between these two young sundered blighters. You will have gleaned that from my remarks to Aunt Dahlia, and if you had been present at this moment and seen the kindly, commiserating look I gave Tuppy, you would have gleaned it still more. It was one of those searching, melting looks, and was accompanied by the hearty clasp of the right hand and the gentle laying of the left on the collarbone. "'Well, tuppy old man,' I said, "'how are you, old man?' My commiseration deepened as I spoke the words, for there had been no lighting up of the eye, no answering pressure of the palm, no sign whatever, in short, of any disposition on his part to do spring dances at the sight of an old friend.' the man seemed sandbagged. Melancholy, as I remember Jeeves saying once about Pongo Twistleton when he was trying to knock off smoking, had marked him for her own. Not that I was surprised, of course. In the cirques, no doubt, a certain moodiness was only natural. I released the hand, ceased to knead the shoulder, and, producing the old case, offered him a cigarette. He took it dully. "'Are you here, Bertie?' he asked. "'Yes, I'm here. "'Just passing through, or come to stay?' I thought for a moment. I might have told him that I had arrived at Brinkley Court with the express intention of bringing Angela and himself together once more, of knitting up the severed threads, and so on and so forth, and for perhaps half the time required for the lighting of a gasper, I had almost decided to do so. Then I reflected—' Better on the whole, perhaps not. To broadcast the fact that I proposed to take him and Angela and play on them as a couple of stringed instruments might have been injudicious. Chaps don't always like being played on as on a stringed instrument. "'It all depends,' I said. I may remain. I may push on. My plans are uncertain.' He nodded listlessly. Rather in the manner of a man who did not give a damn what I did and stood gazing out over the sunlit garden. In build and appearance, Tuppy somewhat resembles a bulldog, and his aspect now was that of one of these fine animals who had just been refused a slice of cake. It was not difficult for a man of my discernment to read what was in his mind, and it occasioned me no surprise, therefore, when his next words had to do with the subject marked with a cross on the agenda paper." You've heard of this business of mine, I suppose, me and Angela? I have indeed, Tuppy, old man. We've busted up. I know. Some little friction, I gather, in Ray, Angela's shark? Yes. I said it must have been a flatfish. So my informant told me. Who did you hear it from? Aunt Dahlia. I suppose she cursed me properly. Oh, no. Beyond referring to you in one passage as this blasted glossop, she was, I thought, singularly temperate in her language for a woman who at one time hunted regularly with the corn. All the same, I could see, if you don't mind me saying so, old man, that she felt you might have behaved with a little more tact. Tact! And I must admit, I rather agreed with her. Was it nice, Tuppy? Was it quite kind to take the bloom off Angela's Shark like that?' "'You must remember that Angela Shark is very dear to her. Could you not see what a sock on the jaw it would be for the poor child to hear it described by the man to whom she had given her heart, as a flatfish?' I saw that he was struggling with some powerful emotion. "'And what about my side of the thing?' he demanded, in a voice choked with feeling. "'Your side?' "'You don't suppose,' said Tuppy, with rising vehemence, that I would have exposed this dashed synthetic shark for the flatfish it undoubtedly was if there had not been causes that led up to it. What induced me to speak as I did was the fact that Angela, the little squirt, had just been most offensive, and I seized the opportunity to get a bit of my own back. Offensive? Exceedingly offensive. Purely on the strength of my having let fall some casual remark, simply by way of saying something and keeping the conversation going, to the effect that I wondered what Anatole was going to give us for dinner. She said that I was too material, and ought not to always be thinking of food. Material my elbow. As a matter of fact, I'm particularly spiritual. Quite. I don't see any harm in wondering what Anatole was going to give us for dinner, do you? Of course not. A mere ordinary tribute of respect to a great artist." Exactly. All the same—well, I was only going to say that it seems a pity that the frail craft of love should come to a stinker like this when a few manly words of contrition—he stared at me. You aren't suggesting that I should climb down. It would be a fine big thing, old egg. I wouldn't dream of climbing down. But, Toppy, no, I wouldn't do it. But you love her, don't you? This touched the spot. He quivered noticeably, and his mouth twisted. Quite the tortured soul. I'm not saying I don't love the little blighter, he said, obviously moved. I love her passionately. But that doesn't alter the fact that I consider that what she needs most in this world is a swift kick in the pants. A wooster could scarcely pass this. Tuppy old man! It's no good saying tuppy old man. Well, I do say tuppy old man. Your tone shocks me. One raises the eyebrows. Where is the fine, old, chivalrous spirit of the Glossops? That's all right about the fine, old, chivalrous spirit of the Glossops. Where is the sweet, gentle, womanly spirit of the Angelus? Telling a fellow he was getting a double chin— Did she do that? She did. Oh, well, girls will be girls. Forget it, Tuppy. Go to her and make it up. He shook his head. No, it is too late. Remarks have been passed about my tummy, which it is impossible to overlook. But, tummy, tuppy, I mean, be fair. You once told her her new hat made her look like a Pekingese. It did make her look like a Pekingese that was not vulgar abuse it was sound constructive criticism with no motive behind it but the kindly desire to keep her from making an exhibition of herself in public wantonly to accuse a man of puffing when he goes up a flight of stairs is something very different i began to see that the situation would require all my address and ingenuity if the wedding bells were ever to ring out in the little church of market snodsbury Bertram had plainly got to put in some shrewdish work. I had gathered, during my conversation with Aunt Dahlia, that there had been a certain amount of frank speech between the two contracting parties, but I had not realized till now that matters had gone so far. The pathos of the thing gave me the pip. Tuppy had admitted in so many words that love still animated the glossop bosom, and I was convinced that even after all that occurred— Angela had not ceased to love him. At the moment, no doubt, she might be wishing that she could hit him with a bottle, but deep down in her I was prepared to bet that there still lingered all the old affection and tenderness. Only injured pride was keeping these two apart, and I felt that if Tuppy would make the first move, all would be well. I had another whack at it. "'She's broken-hearted about this rift, Tuppy,' How do you know? Have you seen her? No, but I'll bet she is. She doesn't look it. Wearing the mask, no doubt. Jeeves does that when I assert my authority. She wrinkles her nose at me as if I were a drain that had gone out of order. Merely the mask. I feel convinced she still loves you, and that a kindly word from you is all that is required. I could see that this had moved him. He plainly wavered. He did a sort of twiddly on the turf with his foot, and when he spoke, one spotted the tremolo in his voice. "'You really think that?' "'Absolutely. Hmm. "'If you were to go to her—' he shook his head. "'I can't do that. It would be fatal. Bing instantly would go my prestige. I know girls. Grovel and the best of them get uppish.' He mused. The only way to work the thing would be by tipping her off in some indirect way that I am prepared to open negotiations. Should I sigh a bit when we meet, do you think? She would think you were puffing. That's true. I lit another cigarette and gave my mind to the matter. And first crack out of the box, as is so often the way with the woosters, I got an idea. I remembered the counsel I had given Gussie in the matter of the sausages and ham— I've got it, Tuppy. There is one infallible method of indicating to a girl that you love her, and it works just as well when you've had a row and want to make it up. Don't eat any dinner tonight. You can see how impressive that would be. She knows how devoted you are to food. He started violently. I am not devoted to food. No, no, I am not devoted to food at all quite all i meant this rot about me being devoted to food said tuppy warmly has got to stop i am young and healthy and have a good appetite but that's not the same as being devoted to food I admire Anatole as a master of his craft, and am always willing to consider anything he may put before me. But when you say I am devoted to food, quite, quite, all I meant was that if she sees you push your dinner away untasted, she will realize that your heart is aching, and will probably be the first to suggest blowing the all clear. Tuppy was frowning thoughtfully. Push my dinner away, eh? Yes push away a dinner cooked by anatole yes push it away untasted yes let us get this straight tonight at dinner when the butler offers me a redevot de la finceière or whatever it may be hot from anatole's hands you wish me to push it away untasted yes he chewed his lip one could sense the struggle going on within. And then, suddenly, a sort of glow came into his face. The old martyrs probably used to look like that. All right. You'll do it? I will. Fine! Of course, it will be agony. I pointed out the silver lining. Only for the moment. You could slip down tonight, after everyone is in bed, and raid the larder. He brightened. That's right. I could, couldn't I? I expect there would be something cold there. There is something cold there, said Tuppy with growing cheerfulness. A steak and kidney pie. We had had it for lunch today. One of Anatole's ripest. The thing I admire about that man, said Tuppy reverently, the thing that I admire so enormously about Anatole is that, though a Frenchman, He does not, like so many of these chefs, confine himself exclusively to French dishes, but is always willing and ready to weigh in with some good old simple English fare, such as this steak-and-kidney pie to which I have alluded. A masterly pie, Bertie, and it wasn't more than half-finished. It will do me nicely. And at dinner you will push, as arranged? Absolutely, as arranged. Fine. It's an excellent idea." "'One of Jeeves's best. You can tell him from me when you see him that I'm much obliged.' The cigarette fell from my fingers. It was as though somebody had slapped Bertram Wooster across the face with a wet dishrag. "'You aren't suggesting that you think this scheme I have been sketching out is Jeeves's?' "'Of course it is. It's no good trying to kid me, Bertie. You wouldn't have thought of a wheeze like that in a million years.' there was a pause. I drew myself up to my full height, then, seeing that he wasn't looking at me, lowered myself again. Come, Glossop, I said coldly. We had better be going. It's time we were dressing for dinner. End of chapter eight.
0: Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you are listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.